0: Welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman. On this episode, Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com. And I are going to talk about the 2006 National Championship game. Uh, It's going to be a fun episode. We break down the game minute by minute. We're going to tell some stories about, you know, the players involved, some of the recruiting battles between the two programs that led up to this game, uh, what it was like to be on campus at UF at the time. Uh, this happened just dive into a lot of that stuff so I think it's a really fun episode um, celebration of Adrian Moss one of the greatest final games for a fifth-year senior you could ever imagine and uh, just a lots more we'll also <clears throat> briefly talk about Mac McClellan the Georgetown transfer that Florida uh, reached out to earlier this week and you know kind of dive into what that means a little bit uh, so hope you enjoy this show we had a lot of fun making it thanks everybody for listening Welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman. I'm with Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com. Uh, Eric, you know, we're, we've got a fun episode today. We're going to talk about the 2006 National Championship game. Um, but, and, and I had intended, I think we had intended to make that the entirety of the show. But there is a little bit of kind of basketball-related stuff to get to. So, um, we did want to address that at the top with Florida reaching out to Max McClung, your, your thoughts on, you know, that development and um, you know, what you think of him as a player. I mean, for starters,
1: I I think you've got to look at it with some level of uh, intrigue just because uh, Florida has, has reached out to so few transfers this year. Uh, When you look at uh, when you look at like who they have, like, you know, legitimately, uh, kind of reached out to you know there was a couple of those low major bigs that were uh, right at the beginning that were graduate transfers um, I, I, I don't think either of them would have been a good fit obviously you know Florida didn't end up getting them and didn't end up being in too serious talks with them uh, I mean Altree Gilbert was another player they uh, they reached out that was a graduate transfer um, then uh, but when you look at like you know true transfers that they've uh, really got in touch with uh, there hasn't been too many of them and the last one uh, that they offered was one that a lot of people thought Uh, Oh, you know, that's uh, there's nothing to that. Uh, That was Colin Castleton, who they obviously ended up taking. So uh, (laughs) for that reason, I think you've got to look at this with at least some level of uh, of intrigue. Um, And, uh, you know, him as a player, I I, I can't speak for everyone who's listening here, but I do know that a lot of people on the Gator Country forums are are not a fan of Mac McClung as a player. And (laughs) I really do not agree with that. I'm definitely a fan of his game. Uh, I think he's just such a talented scorer. And it, it's just funny that he has this reputation as as you know a dunker. And for good reason, he's an outstanding dunker. But I mean, he uh, was close to 16 points a game this year where without a lot of weapons around him when he was the focus of every other team's scouting report. Uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, I just think he's really talented uh, attacking off the dribble. I, I think he just has a little bit of that slipperiness that uh, he's just kind of tough to stay in front of. I mean, Florida saw a player uh in, in Ryan Daly this year that I actually think has i mean ryan daly uh not explosive, not a dunker like Mac McClung, but he's one of those guys that's just like a shorter, thick guy, but Florida just couldn't stay in front of him no matter what they tried to do and Mac McClung has a lot of those kind of tendencies to his game uh but then he of course has the uh the explosive dunking ability but uh but yeah, what do you think about uh Florida offering and what do you think about him as a player
0: well I mean he's a good player um you know, I you think you take 16, three, and three, which is pretty much what his stat line was, right? Uh, almost any time that Georgetown team—that's such a weird program under Pat Ewing because it seems like they have these moments where they're about to bust out, but but they never, you know, really do. There's some, there's a little bit of a, a level of dysfunction um, with that program too, just with all these departures uh you know but the question isn't really about them it's 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 can he play and if you're 16 or 3 and 3 in a in a big 6 league you can play uh you know i think you have to you have to wonder about fit um but yeah i mean he's a really good athlete uh you know known for known for his dunking ability of course um more of the scoring point guard a little less of the The Andrew Nimhard, uh, floor general type player. Uh, certainly somebody that grew up in SEC country. Um, yeah, I mean, he either grew up in Tennessee or right next to Tennessee. Oh, Gate City. Okay. I got it in front of me. Gate City, Virginia, Eric. It's like on the border of Tennessee and Virginia. Mm. So, um, have the Vols reached out? I haven't really followed that this week for various reasons. Uh,
1: I, I know Vol fans think they're going to get him, but I don't recall seeing him in that uh, that first uh, list of uh,
0: schools that Mac McClung
1: went out and said contacted him, uh, of which he named Florida first for whatever it's worth. <laughs> um, I don't recall seeing Tennessee in that mix, but uh, if you're going to go, uh, you know, Twitter search Mac McClung's name, you are largely going to see uh, Tennessee fans that think that they're going to get him. So,
0: um, uh, yeah,
1: for, for take that for. Uh, for what you uh what you will but that makes sense because i knew he's from virginia i did not know that it was you know essentially tennessee
0: yeah i mean he basically grew up on the border uh and he has a sister who played um soccer for tennessee so okay. there's definitely connections to the tennessee program and that was the extent of my tennessee knowledge I was doing a twitter search just to see like what way the winds were blowing and then they were like there's a very popular photo of him at, at a bar, you know, um with a bunch of revelers uh or people drinking their their sadness away after a Tennessee football game last fall. I didn't check the date, so it depends on which half of the season it was, Eric, cuz like the first half of the season all they did was lose. In the second <laughs> half. <laughs> the second half all they did was win, so hard to say. Um but yeah, I mean a good player. Obviously, adds to the NIMHARD and MAN intrigue, doesn't it?
1: Uh, it really does, and I, and I would almost venture that it adds into the intrigue of is there going to be someone else moving out? Um, just because I, I, I mean, I still don't really think that that MAN is 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 on his way out, but um, of yeah. course that possibility is there. But uh, if Florida, let's say you know, got Mac McClung committed tomorrow, uh, I'm not even sure if I my first thought would be. Uh, would be Trey Mann is leaving. I'd I'd almost wonder if if maybe someone else was, which that that is completely unsourced. Um, that's just uh, something that I I kind of wonder as I, uh, you know, look at their rotation and 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 think about you know like do I really think that Trey Mann's going to be on the way out? Uh, yeah, I wonder if uh, uh, if someone else would be on their way out. And you know what? Like this has never been a staff to to push anyone out. But uh, I think Mac McClung is a tremendous player and. Uh, I, I actually really think he fits what Florida wants to do. I, I, I know he doesn't shoot the ball well, but you know something I've kind of lamented on the show before is that Florida has not had any ball handling or creation outside of their point guards these last couple of years. Uh, you need to put multiple ball handlers and multiple playmakers on the floor, on the perimeter. And uh, I, I would just love to see them have someone like a Mac McClung playing the two. I know he'd be a little undersized there, but if you get him next to a more traditional point guard and suddenly you have uh, two guys that can make things happen off the dribble... Uh, uh, then you can start to play dribble drive. Then you can start, uh, you, you know, passing and cutting and, and generating uh, you guys can attack closeouts and start to break down the defense that way. That's always how we know Mike White has wanted to play. He hasn't had the guys for it. Uh, you get someone like Mac McClung at the two next to a point guard. Uh, then you're finally ready to to play the style of basketball offensively that they want to.
0: Yeah. Uh, and, and I guess there's time now with the May 3rd date being pushed back um, or the June 3rd date. I'm sorry. <laughs> So uh yeah so the June 3rd date pushed back um while the NBA and and really everybody in America all the professional leagues try to figure out what they're doing um so a little bit of time to to kind of figure that out but but yeah I, I would agree with you like cuz you know I look at I look at Florida's roster and like we said on the last podcast uh I look at Trey Mann's situation and and for me, it really just boils down to I don't think Trey Mann wants to sit a year, which he'd have to do if he transferred. And I haven't heard anything. And Eric and I are reasonably well-sourced people. So, like, if something was going on that that would, you know, get him the waiver, although who knows with the NCAA, right, Eric? But I haven't heard anything that would be, like, waiver-worthy. Um, so – You know, I just don't feel like he's a guy that's going to sit one if he left, which really doesn't leave him a ton of options other than go to the G League if he could get a G League contract.
1: Yeah, even then, I I would be interested/slash surprised if a team would give him one of their contracts. I think that's the bigger—that's the
0: bigger issue, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, so yeah, I just I don't see and I don't know. I I look at uh, you know what, like Trey Mann if he does come back, he will be in, you know, there'll be competition for those for those minutes. There's there's no question. Um he's not in a guaranteed spot to get a, a big role. There's 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 no question. Um but uh you know Quez Glover, I would say is even in a worse spot. He was below Trey Mann at the end of the uh the, the end of the season's depth chart. So, is that someone who who looks to Make a change? I, I I don't think so. But uh, but again, like uh, you know, offering Mac McClung, uh, that makes things interesting. Or uh, you know, you look at some of the you know, someone like uh, a Sifo, who uh, if he were to you know decommit or whatever you want to say from Florida, he's someone who could be instantly eligible anywhere. You know, coming out of the junior college ranks. So is he someone who says like, hey, I, I don't see the uh, I, I, the groundwork laid out for me to get a, a big role next year? Maybe I don't want a red shirt. You know, maybe yeah. he's someone who. Maybe he's someone who looks else. I, I, again, I just to reiterate, this is like one hundred percent unsourced. This is just from uh, from my mind. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just one of these. It's it's a weird year. College basketball is you know getting more strange every year. I would say when it comes to transfers, and there's just like maybe a little bit of a part of me that says like, hey, this uh, this off season still has a few more interesting twists and turns for the for the Florida basketball program.
0: It really does, and and you know you look at uh, Osaya Osifo's. You know, not to, to go too far down that, that speculation hole, but, you know, a guy that that has some likes on Twitter and some replies and, and stuff going on with his Twitter page and, and you know, never the, the usual customary welcome to Gator Nation tweet from Mike White. So uh, who knows? Who knows what's going on with that? You know, uh, I don't think it's an academics thing because with the JUCO players, it's usually a lot less difficult. Um, but nonetheless kind of wanted to get into that because there were a, a host of you that asked listener questions about what that means. And, you know, I am not sure we offered a whole lot of information because we just don't, I don't have anything. I don't know about Eric on, no, you no. know, Nim, on Nim Harder man right now, but, but, you know, I do. Yeah. I mean, I still think they're kind of in the position where if they take a guy like McClung, you know, either means both those guys are gone, which would be very surprising in the case of Trey man, I think or it means someone else is is out. Um, and, you know, if Florida doesn't take a JUCO signee, uh, you know, you can talk about what that means for recruits in the future. I'm sure that's a piece that somebody might use to negative recruit, Florida. Uh, if they take a kid that they offer that commits. Um, but it happens a lot. That's the nature of the game right now. I mean, you know, Eric Musselman is a great example of, of that, I think at least four players in his short tenure at Nevada that happened with. So it it happens.
1: Yeah. Like, I mean, Hey, does it hurt you next time you try to sign a Juco player? Uh, Maybe, but I mean, is that going to really damage you kind of in in the future recruiting? I would say it's, it's, it's likely not. And yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that that would be something interesting to watch, and I just wonder, hey, mutually. I mean, when Osifo uh, kind of committed to Florida, he committed very fairly quickly after they offered him, and I think he probably saw, hey, like Yante Johnson might be gone, and um, yeah, you know, if not, uh, he he thinks he could compete there. There's, you know, he probably thought a couple of the centers would be on the way out, but they, you know, Colin Castleton comes in, and uh, the team looks differently than than when he uh, than when he committed, and uh, yeah, maybe it's just like. It's just one of those situations where I mean, like, if he were to not come to Florida, he could be instantly eligible anywhere else. So it's almost like you know, when you can be instantly eligible, there there could very well be a, I, I for I'll see I'll use the term better, uh, better home for him in, in his opinion. And uh, quite frankly, if if he was someone I was connected with, uh, I would say like, hey, you should, uh, you should consider all your options. I mean, I, I I am definitely someone who is, um, like I'm I'm all about player rights. I I. I, i'm player first and i, I think that for yeah. so long in college basketball um players have uh yeah would be villainized for doing something like that for committing to someone and then you know backing out to find a better scenario for them but hey if he thought there was a better scenario for him and uh he could be instantly eligible i would i, I would look at those options so uh yeah so that's that's you know a lot of speculation for something that could be absolutely uh you know th- there could be absolutely nothing to it, but. Uh, yeah, I just that's uh we're at that point of the offseason and when Florida's behavior has changed from from previous seasons with the way that they've offered transfers, uh yeah, the smack of McClung thing it, it makes you think.
0: Oh no, for sure. Um, and yeah, so that's uh that's kind of where we're at on that stuff. I just found out that uh Jet Howard um, who played on Knight Riders Elite one of the really good AAU programs in the state of Florida uh, and was uh, on a short list of people that, that, that uh were thinking of attending Westminster next year. It's going to go to IMG instead. So that's what I get for being on Twitter in the, uh, in the midst <laughs> of our, our podcast. Oh, well, all, all the best to Jet. Uh, good player. Um the main reason we're gonna do this pod is break down the 2006 national championship game, uh, Florida UCLA. I kind of wanted to kick off at the top by by noting a couple things um, about it. One was there's a really interesting interview with Billy Packer uh, as part of a March to the Madness pregame, you know, whatever those shows that they show for like 30 minutes in between like games on the first weekend, Eric, you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm, or, yeah. or or usually they don't show them until Saturday or Sunday when there's more time. Um, so second round things. But Packer was asked, you know, in his years of, of watching, um, what were some of the most memorable championship game, not final four performances he's ever seen. And the first thing he said was Florida against UCLA in 2006. So I kind of wanted to put it that in perspective and, and let you guys kind of merit it on that uh, as listeners because Packer had this like legendary broadcasting career, and he thought uh, that one of the most perfect performances he'd ever seen in a national championship game was, was Florida's win over UCLA. He just said it was as comprehensive a victory from a coaching and player standpoint. Uh, as he's seen, and he thought four Gators in particular, uh, Joe Kim-Noah, Corey Brewer, uh, Torian Green, and Lee Humphrey played nearly perfect basketball games. So your thoughts on Billy Packer, uh, his take on that game before we dive in? Yeah,
1: I I mean, this is uh, obviously like watching the game – Uh, live I mean I was like 13 years old this I was pretty new to watching basketball like uh, I was no expert at the time so I mean I remember Florida winning easily uh, but watching it back now through the lens of you know being uh, so much more intelligent about basketball uh, or I'd I'd hope so uh, it it does show just like how well Florida executed on both ends of the floor like uh, something I thought was really interesting uh, that well like okay well I'm gonna start with this Like, that UCLA team has, like, six future NBA players on it, which is insane. Like, I I think that when I – like, I'm probably guilty of this, and I think probably a lot of other people are too, where you, like – when you watch any kind of classic game or, you know, older game and you see that it's a a dominant performance by one team, you kind of, like – in your mind's eye, you look back at the team that lost and you're like, oh, yeah, that team wasn't very good. Like, you know, you watch, like, Florida Gulf Coast beat the, like, Hashim to beat – Otto porter Georgetown team, and you're like, man, that Georgetown team just like wasn't very good. And just, you know, it's based off <laughs> example, but that like sticks with me. So, you know, when I see Florida dominate UCLA, I'm like, man, was UCLA even that good? Uh, but you look at it, they had like six future NBA players with like Jordan Farmar and Darren Collison and Aaron Aflalo and Bob Mute and, and uh, Cedric Bozeman played for a bit, Ryan Hollins played for a few years. Like they were loaded with with NBA talent. So uh, I, I think that <laughs> you know, you could look at Like, you might think, like, hey, you know, because Florida dominated the team, maybe that team wasn't very good. Uh, Obviously, they made the national championship, so they're good. And also, like, hey, they had six future NBA players. Uh, Yeah. That is – that's pretty crazy. And uh, the other thing, too, that I went back and looked at is watching some of the other UCLA games. And and even if you just look at at Ken Palm. So, UCLA, uh, the reason that they were so good is that they were the fourth team – or, sorry, they are fourth in defensive efficiency uh, on Ken Palm. So that was kind of where they uh, did their best work was on the defensive end. And you look at kind of like how Florida won this game. Uh, their defense was definitely spectacular, but a lot of it was because they were just so efficient offensively. Yeah. And uh, so they were so efficient offensively against what was a really good defensive UCLA team. And I think that that, uh, that speaks to what he was saying, where it's like, hey, this was just a, a very well-played game by Florida.
0: Yeah. No, I, you know what? I'm glad you brought up UCLA's talent. Um I thought that was kind of an interesting way to, to frame these because Eric and I are just dry running how we want to talk about these two championship games and and so the way that we did it was we watched on the March Madness YouTube channel which is about like an hour and 11 minute condensed version of the broadcast uh, just takes out all the, the the fluff and sideline interviews and just goes basketball but you get the whole of the Nance Packer call. It's actually quite excellent, I thought. Um, and so I wanted to mention that this, this UCLA team, Ben Howland in his third year, uh, they were 32-6 and six entering the game. They, they had been a two seed, and they were the champions of what was in the Pac-10 is now the Pac-12. Um, they had been 11-17 and 17 two years prior, but most of these guys – Came in with Hallen's first big recruiting class, um, and and they started to win right away. One thing that really interested me from the, like the basketball history standpoint of it, because it, Eric just mentioned all the pros, and I uh, that is fascinating. Another one that the other point I'd make is that. Um, Howland said, you can win at UCLA. And his introductory press conference at UCLA, he said, well, I, I've always thought that you could win at UCLA just recruiting the state of California. So it's pretty fascinating to go back and see that that was, in fact, his strategy. Uh, because the first you know, veteran team that he built, uh, they were all from Los Angeles, Eric. Jordan Farmer was from L.A. Cedric Bozeman, he inherited, but he was from L.A. Darren Collison was from the suburbs of L.A. Ryan Hollins was from the suburbs of L.A. Lorenzo Mato was from the suburbs of L.A. Aaron Offalo grew up in Compton uh, going to UCLA games with his dad, scalping tickets outside. Josh Shipp, who came off the bench, uh, also from L.A. So they basically were just he, – he didn't even need the whole state of California. Like he just had players from Los Angeles. And I thought that was – that's kind of cool.
1: It is, it is interesting. I, I mean, as you say that, I'm like, it's funny how that does not appear to be the case now as the PAC 12 is like regularly one of the weaker. Well, I would say, you know, the weakest, uh, high major conference over the last few years and a lot yeah. of West coast recruits haven't panned out. So that is interesting that it really has, uh, has worked out, but obviously that is a, that is an area that is, uh, uh, you, uh there's a lot of teams that are going to that area to recruit and keeping those guys home could be tough, but, uh, uh, that is an interesting note. Just, uh, just the the difference in like uh how kind of regional recruiting happened back then versus uh yeah versus now there's been some changes there and uh, uh that is worth noting and uh one thing too that i'll also note about both teams is just like uh, so often i look back at that era and i think of how teams were good because they were old uh but these are two teams where like their best players were sophomores right uh, and that's uh, that is another thing that i think is really interesting looking at uh looking at these this matchup is that like yeah both teams uh, with sophomores, you know, uh, primarily younger teams made it to, uh, yeah, made it to a, a national championship game. Um, I think Florida, the fact that they played so composed and so good, like really just like, like it just feels like that that team was just like seniors, like for like three years in a row. Obviously, <laughs> obviously, many of them didn't uh, didn't get to be seniors, but. Uh, uh yeah that's that was another interesting note just about like roster composition because yeah like in my memory you look back at these uh you know the 2000s not just you know with with a lot of the teams that are good in college basketball you think like yeah teams full of juniors and seniors and it's like hey here's two teams with freshmen and sophomores that are playing really good basketball the
0: other the other one the other last like interesting note before we dive right into the basketball game is is so tory and green is was one of the O Force, but a guy who Almost was an 04, was Jordan Farmer. Oh, and um, it, I always thought that was pretty interesting that there, there's this story that that basically Gonzaga that Farmer, you know, you know, this was back before anybody announced who they were picking between, but it was pretty well known and sourced that that Farmer was UCLA, Florida, or Gonzaga and that Gonzaga's big last push was to go to his state championship game with their entire staff. Um, But Farmer did one of those high school announcements, and his high school announcement was in the afternoon California time, and apparently he spent uh, three hours on the phone with Billy Donovan the day of his commitment ceremony with Billy saying, well, you know, I'm going to have a competition for my starting point guard. And you could easily come in here and and play. I don't know about next year, but certainly uh, your sophomore season, you could come in and be the starting point guard. You know, you know, I've got this kid Torian Green lined up, and you guys can duke it out, and whoever wins will start. <laughs> That's an and, interesting uh, story. Oh. So, so yeah, so I mean, imagine. So it's so funny that, that two years later, Jordan Farmar is is in the national title game playing against the team that, that he thought really up until the moment of his decision uh, of going to Florida and ultimately the, the allure of staying home for the, the storied Bruins was too, too strong.
1: Yeah. I think that definitely the fact that that team was so uh, Los Angeles kind of f- focuses, <laughs> it, it's pretty cool and it's, it is cool that he stayed home, but uh, I, I don't want to like b- blow a, a lot of our points that are going to happen. Uh, <laughs> uh, throughout the bulk of this play but I, but I will say like there was um uh you know like uh, UCLA did not look good on that day against the mighty Florida team uh but Jordan Farmar was just excellent like I, I I just like went away from this game with just so much respect for Farmar and I was going to kind of maybe say that for the end of the game but I think I'm just going to say it now for for those of you that um, are going to be watching this game you're going to see a lot of UCLA players really struggle and look uh, very old match by florida but jordan farmar just like really battled really competed hit some big shots uh as much as you know th- as big of shots could be given the uh uh given the point spread that happened fairly quickly and uh yeah i just like came away from this game just like with a lot of respect for farmar's game and uh yeah so to think about the fact that he could have been a, a gator that's uh that's pretty exciting but hey we uh, uh we uh, we uh we love the team that we had anyways and uh I, I'm glad that our team had plenty of success and I'm glad Farmer had success in his uh, UCLA too.
0: Yeah. Well said, I, you know, it's a, it's a good point on Farmer and it brings me to the first point I want to make with the game, which is really at about the, we're only two minutes or so into the March madness broadcast at this point. So anybody that is interested about the 140 mark is where I'm referencing, but the first two or three possessions of the game, I thought were like, when you know, the result, they, they become a little bit tone setting. Uh, you know, I don't think at the time, of course they were, but, but it, it's interesting knowing the result and then watching those couple possessions because um, the first position you have Aaron Aflow, just uh, UCLA's all American guard, just absolutely hounded by Corey Brewer. Um, and, and just unable to, they, they set a screen for him. He can't get open and Brewer fights through the screen and, um, and then Humphrey plays great clamp down defense. And Farmer like just creates anyway. And like there was nothing fundamentally that Lee Humphrey did wrong on that possession, in my view. Maybe maybe Eric has a different one. It was just a great drive. And Farmar scores. Uh, but then Florida, their first six points are all inside on three possessions, and they're all brilliant interior passing. Um, which is like a story of the night. So I, I kind of thought it was so interesting that those first three possessions, you saw that. And then I the last point I'll mention is UCLA's second offensive possession, Brewer again. This time, uh, the screen is underneath the basket, not outside. And Ryan Hollins, who was a really important player, I imagine, in their scouting report because he had the speed to stick with Joe Kim outside. It just turned out he was hopelessly overmatched from a strength standpoint, at least in my view. Um, But he picks up a cheapo foul because Brewer's so good at fighting through screens.
1: Yeah. There's something that I, something that I noticed is, and again, I think it's a little bit of just like the lore about how the, the way this team was talked about
0: uh, as well
1: as, you know, I, you know, watching this team when I was like young, didn't understand basketball. I I think when you think of Lee Humphrey, uh, you think of him as a shooter and, uh, He's, you know, he's undersized and he's, he's white. And you think about his shooting and you think like, Hey, that's what he does. He shoots the ball. But I mean, uh, I thought it was like, uh, it's not fair to him because like he was such a good defender. And I think that that just does not get enough credit. And I think uh, coming out of the gate where he's guarding Jordan Farmer, it's not green. It's not, you know, even you could have put Brewer on him reasonably uh, and cross match in some other ways. Uh, But no, it was Lee Humphrey guarding Jordan Farmer. And I think that that was just like a, a reminder that, uh yeah, Humphrey was just so much more than a, than a spot-up shooter. Uh, his defense was, was incredible. And, uh, yeah, I don't think he did anything wrong on that bucket from Farmer. Uh, that was a tough one, uh, falling away. Uh, just really good shot-making. But uh, that's just my reminder to, to people, too. Just like, hey, watch for the way that uh, Humphrey moves his feet defensively. Uh, I, I just think he's so good on that end. And uh, that was another note that I wrote down of, yeah, at uh, 2 minutes, 4 seconds. Uh, that first bucket of the game was just like, that big to big, Horford to Joachim Noah, like that was just a, uh, that, that ability to play two big men that Florida had and, and not lose anything on the defensive end. Uh, it just made them also just so tough to handle offensively because both of those guys were going to get double teamed uh, anytime they got the ball on the block. And uh, something that I also think was, was really interesting. Uh, because you know, uh, thinking about this team, about how the fact that that they were uh, that they had these two two bigs and in, in Joakim Noah and Al Horford, and uh, and they were dominant, but uh, this was a t- this was a Florida team that was 14th in the country in three point percentage, and uh, that was kind of how they did a lot of their damage throughout the season was from the three point line, and a lot of it was because of those two players. That uh, uh, yeah, a lot of, because those two players would draw double teams, and, and they were both excellent passers, and we saw in this first bucket of the game that it was, uh, uh, that it was the big to big passing, but, uh, but they worked, you know, so good at recognizing the, uh, the open shooter and, and hitting the open shooter for, uh, for wide open jumper when the double came. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was kind of some of my first notes. I also had, uh, you know, Corey Brewer just aesthetically looking tremendous in the baggy t-shirt and baggy shorts combo. Uh, <laughs> that is, that is the look of two thousands. Um, uh, another player who really pulled that off was Darius Nichols uh, back in his West Virginia days. But yeah, I, I would love, I would love a current Gator. Shout to, out to uh, coach. Yeah. I, I would love a current Gator to do the, uh, the baggy shorts, baggy tee. I'm not exactly sure who would, uh, who would pull it off best aesthetically, but um, I, I would just love to see someone, uh,
0: see someone do that. Trey man. Yeah. <laughs> with that mop. Yeah. That I think, I think, be with all that, right. yeah, with that mop, it would, it would look good. Um, he can make that look good. Uh, so I sent the game to one of my players to watch after I had enjoyed it. And uh, he shot me a text and I said, I'm going to use this as the first question for Eric. Um, so and player asked, uh, what, what was with the weak side doubles? <laughs> Why did do they keep doing it? Uh, and I said, because I got to said, well, you got to remember that that's, one way that Ben Howland played defense and also uh, the other context I'll give it before I let Eric answer is that they had just annihilated LSU in the final four doing the same thing to to big baby and Tyrus Thomas who were LSU's very, very good bigs. And remember LSU was the regular season SEC champion. So, you know, they were, they were all kinds of good. Um, And they just, there's just nothing that they could do. Hedges, Weak side doubles. Everything that UCLA is really good at defensively gave LSU fits, um, and I'm sure we're going to talk about the hedges, uh, but but the weak side doubles did not work against Florida. <laughs> uh,
1: I, I mean, the the first thing would just be like, hey, in, in this era, there just wasn't as much fear of the three point shot. The the value of it just wasn't uh, wasn't realized quite yet, but. Uh, I'm actually, okay, so I, I, I'll be honest. I'm actually someone who doesn't mind. Like, if you can get in a rotation where you confidently weak side double and you have someone rotating over to, you know, take away that easy pass, it's, it, it can be a good defense against dominant post players. And, and and part of the reason why is because the thing about the weak side double is that, uh, is that the big man sees the double coming, which, you know, your first yeah. instinct might be like, hey, that's bad because the big sees the double coming. He can go find the open shooter. Uh, that is true. But at the same time, if you are truly trying to get the ball out of a big man's hands, like, like that is your sole focus is like, we do not want this guy beating us. We need the ball out of his hands. Uh, then you actually do, like you want that player to see the double coming and, and then get the ball out. So because the thing, the thing about a strong side uh double that's you know you do see more common uh especially when they're coming over from the opposite side of florida big man is uh you know a, 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 a smart big man will either you know know scouting wise which shoulder he's going to come on whether he'll come for uh, on the baseline or the top side uh but also i mean there's there's also kind of uh time for that there's time from that when that player comes over double that the big man can still either make a move or, or or do something. But the thing is if you send a weak side double, oftentimes that big is gonna see the double coming and he doesn't wanna wait for the double to to come before he tries to figure out what he wants to do. He's gonna pass it out. So that was something that was a little bit more common in, in this era without the fear of the the three was to to send a double from like where that post player can uh, can see it coming from, but but I would say that that yeah that that is the reason. If if you truly want the ball out of someone's hands as quickly as possible, send a double team where they know it's coming from because yeah they don't want to uh, they don't want to have two you know two sets of arms going at the ball before they try to try to make something happen. Oftentimes, especially with young bigs, they'll be like, "Oh, a double's coming. I better make a play before he gets here."
0: Oh, that's excellent, excellent stuff. Uh, from Mar- see, we get some we get some coaching thoughts in. <laughs> for, for players, even when we're talking national championship games, which is one reason I I love doing the show with with somebody who knows as much ball as Eric (laughs) does. But, uh, yeah, it it, it didn't work for UCLA on this night, largely because Joe Kim Noah and Horford would see the double coming and make perfect passes out of it pretty much throughout the evening. Um, (laughs) uh, you know, another, another thing that I, I noticed early in the game, um, was that if you were in, and we talked about the Torian Green is overrated club uh, from in one of the earlier pods when we discussed the Twitter tournament, Eric. So if you're a member of that club, this is the worst film that there is for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the worst film. Uh, and, it, and the first real like dagger to you is six minutes in where we get to one of the hedges. And it, it's really interesting because there's a Joe Kim Noah block but then UCLA plays marvelous transition defense and really kind of ruthlessly chases uh, Green around so that Noah can't get him the ball. But Green gets freed up and then immediately recognizes a hedge and dribbles around it. And Florida has a pick-and-roll set. They drop the pick-and-roll cover. So Torian just says, all right, and buries a jumper. And all of a sudden, the Gators are up five. And it was just kind of like, this twenty-second, what can and Green do? Moment of film that that gets replicated a lot.
1: Yeah, I, I, I mean, truthfully, I still think uh, this whole game is a sample size. There's still uh, people who think he's overrated are probably going to still kind of come away from that overrated, thinking he's overrated just because. Oh, just uh, of the Florida, uh, That's right. <laughs> well, just because Florida had so many. Florida has so many players just play awesome. I think that, yeah, and I mean, like you even see like when Walter Hodges comes off the bench is really good. I'm sure a lot of people were, people are still going to like, if you thought Torian Green's overrated, that's probably just your prerogative. And uh, I, I'm I'm glad you pointed that out. And I, I did think that Joakim uh, (laughs) Noah, Joakim Noah getting that block uh, to initiate the, uh, the kind of play you were talking about uh, and, and then to get the ball and start pushing the break himself. I thought that that was just like quite the like perfect capsule of uh, of Keep noah's kind of time at florida to yeah. have an awesome block um i noted that he was 24th in the country in block percentage that season so oh, um so you know good. one of the best shot blockers in the country no surprise there um and uh yeah I, i'm also going to uh, uh i i've got to backtrack a little bit just because i made a note about this at 356 oh please uh, there's do. just like the most like gorgeous offensive possession that I think Florida ran all game. Um so that's something that uh, uh I just uh, if you're looking for just like some like fantastic offense. This was right after Corey Brewer actually had like the charge taken from a follow. Um I think it was the possession after that. Um but Florida uses like this uh they start in this like horn sit look that uh that you see so often. Uh but then they like break off into a, into a post up with a, or with the, sorry, with the flex screen, which was just like so devastating because again, um, when you've got Horford and, and Noah and you're running these cross screens, uh, teams are so worried about like, like, you see so many teams that have like one post player nowadays uh, and, and you see teams that run like those, those flex screens, um, setting a screen for a player to go from one side of the block to the other. Uh, you, you know, they're usually concerned with a uh, uh, concerned with the big man that, uh, or the one player that's really good at finishing. Uh, So you often see like a guard setting a flex screen for a big man. But uh, with Florida, you saw, you know, Al Horford setting a screen for Joakim Noah. And in this case, it's Horford sets a screen for Noah. Uh, The defense's uh, first response is to take away uh, the potential for the pass into uh, into Noah, which uh, which gives a wide open pass to uh, to Horford, who's able to just lay it in. And I just thought it was like that would be so tough to guard. And I think if you just want to see like uh, a really, really good example of, of Florida's offense and how they use two bigs, I uh, look at 356 of, of that video and uh actually another a, another play that I thought just like perfectly I- embodied Florida's offense uh at this era and especially in this game that was so effective was um at 8 minutes and 23 seconds uh where you know you have Corey Brewer who's just so athletic and uh he, he uh, Florida was just running him off all these curls, which is something that, you know, you and me have talked about wanting to do for like a Keontae Johnson or uh, yeah. just to get kind of players going towards the hoop. And if you want to see how, how effective that could be, uh, go to 823 because, yeah, you've got Brewer coming off these, uh, uh, go, coming off these curls. And uh, it, it's just so hard to defend when a player's coming off a curl and gets the ball because suddenly he has an advantage and he's got a lot of speed. And uh, so they, hit, they hit, uh, hit Brewer on the curl, and then he uh, dumps it down into Chris Richard, who just like lays it in strong. And uh, it was just also a reminder that uh, that Chris Richard was, you know, to have a senior like that coming off the bench. Uh, that was just such a luxury for the Gators. Like, that's another thing. Like, there's so many things about this team that can be uh, brought up for like why this team was so good. Uh, Bring Adrian boss and, and Richard off the bench like that. That could have been the starting front court for a lot of teams in the country. And Florida had those guys coming off the bench.
0: Yeah, that was going to be the next point. So you just you just teed me up nicely for okay. the the uh, the other reason I thought, you know, the way that they defended Glenn Davis and Tyrus Thomas was effective is with all due respect, you know, Big Baby and Tyrus Thomas were kind of, that was it. Those were the bullets in LSU's gun. Um, and, you know, Garrett Temple was a pretty good player uh, as well. but But still, you know, in terms of their bigs, those were the two dudes that they had. Uh, Florida just had waves of them I mean you know so you could take you could take Horford and Noah and Green all off the floor which Florida does at the 825 or so mark and Florida extends the lead with Adrian Moss on the floor (laughs) you're right Um, you know they extend the lead 10 of Florida's first 15 points are in the paint Um, and then the value of Adrian Moss really in, in two segments kind of different times but he gets a bucket, then he goes down and takes a charge at the other end from Darren Collison, who, who got going downhill and out of control. And then at minute 23, uh, you know, Moss is so active on the glass. So the third facet of his game, right? Um, that he gets that third frustration foul on, on uh, Mata, who was one of the really other than Farmar, I thought was the only UCLA player who kind of looked like he was active and holding his own. Um, and when he picked up the third foul, that that was kind of game changing in that regard.
1: Yeah, it's uh, the thing about uh, yeah, and the other thing with that first, you know, that Moss, that Adrian Moss, like where he uh, not only did he have that bucket, but it was on like a huge offensive rebound off a of Corey Brewer miss, and uh, he just yeah. went and got it and, and off and a then, curl. Uh, yeah, and then uh, uh, and then on the other end takes the charge, and he's looking great in the baggy t-shirt look that I'm that I'm just a big fan of of these two thousands games. Um, yeah, I just thought he was excellent. And, you know, Mato was good, but Lorenzo Mato was also a guy that... Uh, so, as we know, you know, Noah had a billion blocks in the uh, in this game, in the first half specifically. And there was a couple of times where, you know, Lorenzo Mato was just like... You, you know, you could hear... He had those, like, he catched catch the ball under the hoop and he would just, like, pump fake it twice because he was terrified. He heard footsteps and then sure. he ended up getting blocked anyways because he had... Uh, because, you know, he pump faked twice. So, uh yeah, uh, he was uh, he was in trouble against Florida's front court. I mean, I, he's a guy I thought I did think he played to the best of his ability, but that was an, again just an indication of like uh, when you were seeing uh, like just how how Florida's front court just absolutely dominated UCLA. And, uh this is maybe a thought that would be better for, you know, after the the game, uh but I'll I will say it now. Uh maybe it's just something to watch for. I I mean, you don't often see a nowadays like you don't often watch a game of basketball and look at the team that won and say hey this team won because their front court was so much better than the other team yeah Uh, and not to take away from florida's perimeter players but uh but uh, you know in beating ucla it it really was uh, i would say because florida's front court just like really dominated and uh yeah i just i i'm glad that we can give kind of adrian moss here some some shine here because i just thought he was so good uh uh, there's a play later I'll, I'll point it out when we uh, when we kind of get to it when I see it in my notes but uh, one thing that I did think was pretty interesting is the fact that Florida did play a lot of Joe Kim Noah and Al Horford together um, and then you know Richard and Moss together they didn't kind of like blend those guys in a, a ton and I thought it was just so funny because like later in the second half when the wheels were kind of starting to fall off and you could really tell that you know Florida was done hating the game uh, Adrian Moss and, and Richard just had a couple of possessions in a row that were really good and then, then there was a foul and then um yeah, it, it, the the camera went to the discourse table and saw that Joakim Noah and Al, Al Horford were coming back in and there was just a look on the, the front court of UCLA that was like oh my goodness like we were just <laughs> had our hands full with with Moss and Richard and then you see Al Horford and Joakim Noah coming in like I actually just like burst out laughing. I thought it was, I thought it was just uh, uh just hilarious. Um yeah. what, oh, mean, it, is.
0: it is it is.
1: <laughs> well, one one last point um uh, that I want to point out at at 16:48 um there, like this, turned out to just be a foul. Uh, this, uh, this wasn't uh, this wasn't a bucket, but uh, I mean, there's obviously so much talk about the way that Florida, this you know, these last couple of years haven't played in transition very often. I thought at 16:48, uh, there was like a, a perfect transition possession by Florida, where uh, they got a defensive rebound with Joakim Noah, and then Horford just immediately went uh, went rim running. He just went in a straight line from Florida's hoop all the way down to UCLA's hoop. And the wings both ran wide uh horford got an early seal uh and uh it was just like a really good example of like how you with the wings running their lanes with the uh the second big that didn't get the rebound with him rim running uh the way that they spaced the floor and then and then pushed I thought it was just a perfect example of like what it's like to to play transition basketball so anyone who you know it's something you and me talk about lots and i I would just say yeah sixteen forty eight that's a uh uh, that's a time to really, uh, to just see like what, you know, playing fast can, can really look like.
0: Yeah. And, and I think in addition to Florida's front court advantage, the spacing was, uh, a huge, you know, Florida's ability to space the floor, uh, was really disruptive to what UCLA wants to do defensively, Eric. And, and we see it, um, on Florida's first made three of the game, which it's hard to think of a, a Billy Donovan team. that doesn't make a three until there's nine minutes left in the first half, but that's precisely what happens on great inside out basketball, uh, that you had referenced Florida's bigs and their ability to find the open man on the perimeter. And here Lee Humphrey hits a three and, and really an incredible shot because he got hacked pretty hard, uh, ends up rattling in a four point play and it gives Florida their, their, uh, their first double-digit lead after after Humphrey gets the uh, friendly Hoosiers bounce on the on the, on the free throw, um, but but I thought that was just another example of of how Florida's spacing, you know, really disrupted UCLA because another situation where UCLA comes with help and you just can't help off Lee Humphrey that much, but. Not enough teams had the type of three point threat that Florida had in Lee Humphrey. So, you know, there were big risks in that kind of help defense, and with good spacing, Florida was able to exploit it.
1: Yeah, there was a at eighteen thirty that that four point play is that possession was just gorgeous because it started with you know Humphrey had the ball, then he passed it from his guard spot to the other guard, and then he got one of those like chin screens that we see in Mike White's offense. Yeah, uh, and then when that first uh, when that pass wasn't there for the easy layup, he's now underneath the hoop, and it went into something that you see called called floppy all the time in, in the NBA, where there's uh, you know two players on one side of the floor he could run off of, or there was uh, there's a single player on the other side, and he can choose whether he wants to uh, uh, take the screen on either side. He took the single side, and obviously it turned into the four point play. But you'll see that uh, you'll see that a, a few times throughout this game. Uh, where, yeah, the player gets a chin cut, he gets underneath the hoop, and then he reads whether he wants to go off the side with, with two-player screening or the single-player screening. And, and, yeah, that's something called floppy that you see in the NBA all the time. And it was, again, one of the plays where I'm just like, man, this, this Florida team played just such <laughs> good offense, especially in this game. And, um, and then at 20, uh, 20 minutes, 25 seconds, uh, this was a play, like, this was like a nothing play. So someone uh, might miss it uh, if you weren't really looking for it. But, uh, you know, I mentioned that I thought Lee Humphrey's defense was, was underrated. Uh, I also think his ball handling was underrated. Like, I, again, I think so often he gets talked about as, you know, a spot-up shooter. But it, uh, at, at, uh, uh, at 20 minutes and 25 seconds, uh, he, uh, he, he has the ball and he goes through his legs. Like, he has, like, two crossovers through his legs and beats his man <laughs> and draws a foul. Like, just kind of one of those, like, you know, it was 20 feet from the hoop. But the player, you know, I forgot what UCLA player was. Uh, but he got beat and he had to, had to hack him. So he wasn't going downhill. But it was just like this like quick flurry of like really good ball handling skill, um, from Lee Humphrey that I, that I really enjoyed. So yeah, if you are uh, taking part in the the rewatch and, and taking some of these time codes, uh, definitely, uh, definitely go to 20 minutes and 25 seconds and just see like this brief flurry of of dribble moves from, uh, from Humphrey that just like reminds that he was, he was more than just a shooter.
0: Yeah. That's 50% of the point I was going to make that my, my next note was that, uh, at minute twenty on the film, Florida gets its first commits its first turnover of the game. Mm. Um, so, again, they don't make a three till they're under ten, and they don't commit a turnover against UCLA until they're under ten. UCLA fourth in defensive efficiency, and the number that I wrote down um, when I kind of kin palmed them and and then watched the UCLA game, the UCLA LSU Final Four game, to kind of get a better idea what they were about. Was that UCLA was 23rd in non steal turnovers, which means that their hedging in particular uh, was disruptive and forced, you know, unforced turnovers, right? Where people threw the ball away looking for a man or they, uh, they traveled or, you know, any number of things. And that's a great point about Lee Humphrey because he's part of that. It wasn't just how composed Torian Green was uh, in dealing with some of those hard hedges
1: yeah I mean uh talking about Ken Palm for this team I uh, they were like like the Gators like 141st in turnover percentage like they were not bad but they it wasn't like they were a team that was outstanding at taking care of the ball so uh uh, yeah I thought that was kind of an interesting note because again I, I would have thought if you would have asked me I would have been like oh I bet this team was super responsible and really took care of the ball and you know the Gators were were okay at that but uh uh, yeah, it wasn't like they took care of the ball excellently. Uh, yet in this game, they uh, obviously took great care of the ball. And uh, that was one of the things that just, you know, when you're they like this game was just like very quickly. Florida got a lead and then just like wore down UCLA more, wore them down more, wore them down more. Yeah. And not turning the ball over and giving UCLA any chances for easy buckets um, or, you know, just uh, not turning the ball over. So Florida can get a shot up, which is either going to go in or they're going to offensive rebound it with their great bigs. Uh, it was, yeah. It's just uh, it definitely played a big role.
0: Yeah, and another uh, you know Florida's transition defense also spectacular. The Bruins were 298th in in tempo, but they did like to pick their spots and, and run off turnovers. Uh, did that at a pretty efficient rate uh, in their win over LSU um, with with 20 transition points out of their 56 points in the final four game, Eric. Um, so. That's pretty good, uh, but they weren't able to do it in Indianapolis against Florida, and part of that was just Florida's ability to get back on defense. Corey Brewer making some of those crazy Spider Man plays. My favorite one was at twenty six thirty, where uh, Brewer actually comes back and picks Darren Collison's pocket, <laughs> going downhill to the to the basket. And you know what was interesting about that is it felt like the game was about. I think the game was eight points at that point, uh, thirty to twenty two, and it felt like maybe UCLA was. Climbing back in the game, and Florida gets a steal and a bucket on the other end, just just out of a UCLA transition opportunity that their defense disrupts.
1: Yeah, so uh, at 20, 25 minutes and thirty two seconds, uh, that was when I broke out in audible laughter um, because <laughs> uh, it was a couple of plays before where yeah, Lorenzo Mata had the drop off pass and then he had a wide open layup, like you no, know, he was uncontested and he and he missed it because yeah, I think he was peered footsteps. Uh, yeah. and then uh, then he got met by Adrian Moss, who kind of stood him up. He bounced off Moss, and then I think Richard got the block, uh, and then Moss just like with one hand just like ripped away the rebound, and then got fouled.
0: And, yeah, the, the frustration then, foul. Yeah, right. the
1: frustration foul that you mentioned, and then you know like and then uh, it was like a possession or two later was when uh, <laughs> uh, was when Noah was at 25 minutes and 32 seconds was when uh, Noah Horford coming into the game, and there's like this look on UCLA's face that was just like uh, like it was just exasperation, just because. Right. Uh, like once again, like like Florida, if Florida's starting front court was Adrian Moss and and Richard, I mean they would have won a lot of games. Like that was a good tandem. So uh, for them to, so for those guys off the bench to just like hang with UCLA starters, and then Florida's you know no, Noah and uh, and Orper to come in, it was it was just hilarious. So that was a funny moment. Um, there's a, I, I have a couple more. I, you know I, I made a note, of course, about Brewer who seemed to have you know ten back taps running back in transition. like you <laughs> mentioned that was also hilarious. Uh, so some good, uh, some good moments there. And then I, I have two jokey Noah notes. Uh, first of all, it was just, you know, at 28 minutes and two seconds. He had another one of those. You know, he posted up, double team comes, drops it off to Moss. Easy two. And then um, at, at 29 minutes, he had a bucket that was, you know, probably a travel. Uh, but uh, was where he you know dr- took, a, took a dribble or two and just dribbled down his man and, and laid it in. And uh, it was just like something like for him to be that big, uh, but have that dexterity. Uh, I just thought it was so impressive and you know he had a great NBA career but it was mostly about his passing from the high post or uh, or his defense most specifically Uh, it was his defense why he had such a good NBA career Uh, but yeah, to see him dribbling down other big men and 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 laying in the ball strong and and showing that skill finishing uh, I I thought that was a lot of fun
0: yeah it was pretty good man uh that and the travel right in front of our our guy Tony Green um (laughs) who uh had kind of a bad night with Florida this past season. Uh, but, but it was uh, but it was on the on the call in the national championship game on that evening, probably so in awe of of Noah's sheer ability that he missed the travel, I'm sure. Um, but but yeah, that, that was that was one. and then uh at, a little bit after that, at the thirty one minute mark, you see Joe Kim Noah break the NCAA championship game record for block shots in a game in the first half. He just broke the record in one half with, with, <laughs> with five first half blocks. Uh, so the Gators go into half up 36-25 and about as flawless a half as you could play. And yet one where they only make one three-pointer uh, because Torian Green is short on a couple really open ones. Um, and Humphrey, you know, made one, but missed two others. Uh, Walter Hodge had a wide open one that he missed. Um, Florida had three turnovers uh, the whole half; uh, all of them came in the last nine minutes. Um, and so, and and th- this was the last kind of thing that I thought was interesting is that Florida goes the last five minutes of basketball without a basket. They don't make a field goal for five minutes and twenty three seconds. So you have this extended scoring drought. Um, but because Florida was so good defensively, you really don't even notice it.
1: Yeah, that's that's shocking to me. I, I I was not aware of that, and I've you know rewatched the game a, a few times in the last couple of weeks. So uh, I think that that obviously just speaks to how good Florida was that they can, uh, uh, well, obviously that they you know had a had a point total from before from their offense being being that good, but also just the fact that they uh, they're a team that could have won with their defense or their offense and. Uh, obviously, on this night, it was both, and that was one of the uh, one of the reasons why it was, you know, such a such a well played game. But uh, yeah, it was something that that i had written down as well. That you mentioned uh, the fact that Florida didn't, you know, was they they one of the reasons they were so good was that they were so effective at hitting through three ball. Uh, in the first half, they they didn't have many of them, but uh, yeah, there's just that that three in transition at, at 38 minutes and, and 40 seconds uh, from from Humphrey, and it's like okay, that's uh, it, it. Looks like the floodgates might open. Yeah, Uh, 39 minutes and and 57 seconds. uh, There's that extremely deep three from Humphrey and there's a there's a hand in his face. And uh, that was that was that that was that was the moment where, you know, I I really felt like UCLA just it didn't matter what they were going to do. They were they were not getting back in the game. And um, oh, actually, I have one more note. Um, So so UCLA was a really good defensive team. uh, And specifically, they were really good because they were 12th in the country at. Uh, at opponent three-point attempts, so they right. really limited their opponents' attempts uh, from three. So I, I thought they did pretty good, pretty pretty well at that in the first half. Obviously, like Florida didn't have many open looks, but uh, uh, but again, Florida just wore them down. And when Humphrey hit those two threes, even though you know the second one was the first one was in transition, uh, the second one was like you know Humphrey's pretty well defended. He just just drilled it from deep. But uh, yeah, that was like you know the one thing that was really going for for UCLA was that they were not allowing Florida to hit from deep. And, uh, uh, yeah, there's there's a couple from Humphrey. That, there's a, the, the three from Brewer a little bit later. And, uh, yeah, I, it, it was just the moment where I was like, yeah, this is, uh, this is not UCLA's night.
0: Yeah, no, the, the, the 38-31, um, if not a backbreaker, you know, I just thought uh, was so big because Florida, you know, UCLA came out, ran a pretty good set. And you just couldn't score. And then Florida hits to have Florida hit a three. Uh, I mean, what a demoralizing start and how, I thought took a really, I thought of you, Eric, because how took her such a good time out. There. <laughs> like, I thought that was an excellent timeout. Um, like everybody calm down. It's just one three-pointer, but it didn't matter because Florida comes out and Humphrey hits a three in far face. space. It, it, it gets to 42, 25. And then uh, just a, a Gorgeous interior pass from Horford to Chris Richard on another weak side double puts Florida up 20 at 45 55. And really that was when the party started. I thought, Uh, and I can tell you as a college student in Gainesville at the time, that is definitely when the party started Hmm. Um, is, is once Florida had a 20 point lead, the few holdouts like me who were like, they could still lose uh, no longer thought they could still lose
1: yeah it really just felt that way and again like at uh, at 44 minutes and 10 seconds there's uh on the broadcast there's the graphic that shows that uh that jordan farmar is 5 for 10 from the field and the rest of the team is, is 5 for 24 from the field and i felt like that was kind of a big part of it was like you know farmar was good but he wasn't going to be able to do it all on his own uh it, especially when uh when florida's front court was was doing so well and, and florida's perimeter was doing so well i mean uh, Farmar was, you know, he was handling a lot offensively and he was holding his own defensively. Uh, but there was nothing he was going to be able to do about that, about that front court. So I thought that that was an indication of, of, uh, yeah, just like how Farmar was kind of, he, he was playing great basketball, but, uh, but not anyone else was for UCLA. And that's kind of why it was
0: like,
1: they they like they didn't need one, like one more player. They needed like three more players to step up yeah. for, for them to get back in the game. So I think that that's, uh, was why, uh, why at that point it really kind of felt like it was over. And, um, yeah, I would say, like, like if I'm a UCLA fan, I, I'm really disappointed by, by Aaron Aflalo. I, I thought he was just a much better player uh, than he obviously showed in this game. Um, if any of you you know haven't watched him play or, you know, didn't watch much of UCLA, like, you're not going to think much of Aaron Aflalo because he was pretty poor in this game. Uh, but he was a really good player who just really struggled with Florida's length. So uh, I, that's something that, uh, yeah. Florida should definitely get credit for is just like completely eliminating a follow from the game because there was like times where I didn't even know he was on the floor, even though he was.
0: Yeah. It, uh, it's interesting. Like, so, uh, you know, I thought that too. And I also thought that their, their McDonald's all American freshman, Darren Collison, just didn't, <clears throat> he did not have a very good night. Um, and if you look at their like advanced metrics, they kind of needed him to contribute to, to make their bench better. Alfred Avoya came off the bench and put Joe Kim. No on a poster at minute 51. Uh, UCLA had all these really nice blob plays, by the way, they had like four plays off, off blobs where I was like, man, that was a really nice set. And you know, they either missed a three, I think on two of them, they missed a three on one of them. They missed a bunny at the rim. Because, like Eric said, I I think that they, their clocks were going crazy in their head. Uh, But Alfred boya who was a freshman and part of a UCLA senior class that ultimately went to three Final Fours and um, is still the winningest senior class in UCLA history, which is remarkable if you know about UCLA. Um, they, uh, that was pretty cool. But what was great about that was on the very next possession, Joe Kim Noah gets a step-in bucket against boya on the other end and just kind of – like. You can't tell because it's not high definition enough, but he definitely gave like a Joe Kim Glare and a Boya. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's cool that you dunked on me, but like, look at the scoreboard. <laughs> yeah, that,
1: that one baseline out of bounds play that, uh, that lob by UCLA was really nice. And I think, I think Florida was zoning. Like, I mean, it's tough to yeah, say they were. for
0: sure. Uh, yeah. but
1: yeah, I'm pretty sure they were zoning. I think UCLA was ready for that and had the perfect play. So, uh, yeah I, I will yeah full credit to them that was that was really well designed <laughs> so uh you uh you wonder where uh, some of that other kind of uh, set offense might have might have worked for them the rest of this game but um, yeah uh there was also you know i, I did have a 51 minutes and 48 seconds tory and green had a really nice uh uh really nice pick and roll pass to joe noah and that was uh, one of the nice nice moments from green for sure uh really smooth basketball from there and uh uh, I I told you a little bit earlier that it really felt like the game was over, but I I the moment that the game like the what I actually added my notes is when I felt like the game was over. Uh was at 53 minutes and 50 seconds. Uh Jordan Farmar just gets lost and he has a wide open three and he just like didn't have enough legs and, and it missed badly. And it was one yeah. of those moments where it was like, you know, like if that three goes, like maybe they get something going, but uh yeah, yeah, Farmar missing that missing a wide open three and just looking like so tired and missing that uh that's actually what i what i had is uh, uh as when when i you know said that the game really felt like it was over but um yeah i guess uh, i guess it could have been earlier and, and i guess there's there's still a lot of time on the clock but just like the, the feel of the game the energy level from ucla uh it felt like they knew that uh, yeah there's just nothing they were gonna be able to do
0: yeah i mean aaron aflalo's first basket came with 11:28 left and ucla down 20 um that was not Ever part of the plan when you're all American doesn't score till you're down 20 points. He does hit two consecutive threes. Um, and minute 56, you know, Florida, again, interior passing, just beautiful interior passing to get a basket to respond to the second of those threes. But then a follow has a pretty good look to cut it under single digits to get it to nine. Um, and, and, you know, he's, it's short and, and wide. Uh, so, you know, they they just could never do that, and and yeah, you you knew that that was it. So Billy Donovan joined uh, Deed Smith, Bobby Knight, and Billy Don. At, at <laughs> he joined Deed Smith and Bobby Knight as the only players to play, uh, the only coaches to play in the Final Four, and uh, win the national championship as a coach in the Final Four. And that that list is still uh, current. Yeah, and it, it, it didn't seem like, uh, like UCLA really had the firepower to get back. And, and
1: something I think that was kind of interesting about their, uh, their tournament run was, like, uh, obviously they made a national championship, so to kind of criticize their tournament run is, like, kind of sounds foolish, but I, I will anyways, just in the sense that, like... Uh, so they played Alabama in the round of 32, and they won by three. So, like, just kind of hung around with Alabama and then was... Yeah, against, come from behind. You know, and then, uh, and then they, uh, they beat Gonzaga by two in the Sweet 16, Uh, just kind of hang around but but execute well enough at the end of the game Uh, and then they have another close game uh, four or five points I think uh, to Memphis so and then I believe they beat LSU pretty handily in the like you mentioned earlier Uh, but uh, but you look at you know Alabama Gonzaga and Memphis those were all games that they very well could have lost and a lot of them were just you know slower low possession games where they were able to out execute in the end Um, yeah they I feel like Maybe they got a little bit lucky making it to the national championship game. I mean, to have to have three games that close uh, where, like you mentioned, they were behind in some of them. Uh, yeah, they, I, I think that they probably were overplaying their ability a little bit to, to get to this national championship game. And uh, and that was something that also, uh, kind of in my research before the game, now to, to watching it again, uh, it just felt like when Florida had that big lead, that, uh, yeah, yeah, the UCLA. Like, as much as I mentioned before, like, yes, they had six – I did mention that UCLA was a good team. They had six future NBA plays. Uh, but at the same time, like on this tournament run, it wasn't like they were playing fantastic basketball.
0: Well, you know, that Memphis team was a one seed. Um, so, and that that was a John Calipari team that, that was pretty darn good. Uh, you know, they had a couple All-Americans, Chris Douglas Roberts. A lot of people would remember him. Uh, young Darius Washington wasn't an All-American yet but was a very good player Uh, Joey Dorsey another very good player Uh, so you know he he, is kind of a classic John Calipari Tony Barbie team right like a lot of wings before people played that way Dribble drive offense just suffocates you on defense they were a little limited offensively which we know some of his Kentucky teams can be and and teams that were limited offensively were good matchups for UCLA because UCLA was admittedly a little bit limited offensively, I think. Um, you know, and we saw that against Florida, Eric. But yeah, I mean, they they come from behind to beat Alabama in the second round, and then they come from seventeen down, uh, to beat Gonzaga, um, which was one of the yeah. largest comebacks in the history of the NCAA tournament, I think. It still is. So uh Big yeah. Big Adam
1: big Adam Morrison game in the uh the history of college basketball
0: right a huge Adam Morrison <laughs> game and then uh you know the famous that I still think they show I still think they show Adam Morrison crying on the sideline uh all the time during March oh, Mad yeah. oh yeah yeah. I'm pretty sure that shot is like pretty iconic um so but yeah they, they, they had a, they had played Memphis in the regular season I looked and and they had lost to them So they avenged that loss to the one-seed Memphis in the Elite Eight and then played, I thought, brilliantly against LSU, who, again, was the SEC champion in the Final Four. So a very good team, uh, but not one that, you know... I'll tell you this. In Gainesville, the thought of most people, I think, leading up to the game was that they might... A great defensive team was going to be a problem for Florida. Like, everybody still had the old battle wounds from the previous Donovan teams that if you, if you could just play physical with them and be real tough on defense, that uh, the Gators might buckle. And of course that really Florida kind of bullied UCLA and flipped the script on that narrative.
1: So, so I've got a question for you. I was going to ask this earlier, but uh, I need some insight for you from you who is uh, following the team more closely than, than 13 year old new basketball fan, uh, Eric. So, uh, you know, looking back at Florida season, obviously they had the uh, they had three losses in a row in the SEC. Uh, you know, it's a good to a good Arkansas team, a good good Tennessee team, good Alabama team. But uh, uh, I was just gonna like, do you have any any memory of like when Florida went through those losses? What was going on? And uh, how do you think you feel if you're South Carolina or Tennessee, who both went two and zero against Florida, but uh, you know sees Florida go on to the national championship?
0: Well, you know, I think I think it's different for the the, the second one. It's interesting. What went on in the middle three games, I think, is that Florida was careless with the basketball, and it really wasn't much more complicated than that. Um, It was some growing pains, and Billy was still trying to figure out what his bench was going to look like, Eric. And so I think he had a bunch of young players who were playing starter-heavy minutes for the first time in their career other than Corey Brewer. And Florida kind of hit the conference grind. And so Donovan was figuring out his bench and Florida didn't take care of the ball. Great. Uh, That South Carolina team took really good care of the ball. Look at the Kim Palm numbers. Um, And I think, and Billy Donovan, who rarely went all John Calipari on selection Sunday, but did that year uh, in saying that he thought it was kind of an outrage that Dave Odom's team didn't get in the tournament. Um, You know, Billy was very high on the league on selection Sunday and told anyone that would listen, Hey, you know, we're battle tested. Uh, we have a very good league. Uh, the Gators came in hot. Of course they had won their last 12 games. So there's some background there, but, but I think the distinction was Tennessee. Uh, there, they also could turn Florida over. So it was almost like two different things. It was like against South Carolina, Florida couldn't really suffocate you defensively and Dave Odom teams did so much to control tempo that, you know, you just played these kind of low scoring games and, and in one of them, the one in Columbia, the Gamecocks just shot the ball lights out. Uh, But, you know, even the SEC title game that Florida won was kind of this, you know, James Naismith, Dr. Naismith would not have been proud to watch that game. Right. Like it was, it was ugly, but Florida won. The Tennessee games were were good, fun basketball games, Eric, um, and and Bruce Pearl's just refusal to do anything but press for thirty minutes to forty minutes, uh, you know, really wore on Florida. And then I think I think that Tennessee team had a little bit of a nastiness and an edge to it that that grinded Joe Kim a little bit and that that you know got under the skin of the usually unflappable Florida. A little bit, and I think Bruce Pearl does that too, right? So, those were some some interesting games, and Florida just kind of came out on the run side of them. Uh,
1: speaking about that South Carolina team, like that, like so, obviously this was an era before analytics were really embraced, uh, particularly in, in the evaluation of basketball teams. Uh, but that South Carolina team was nineteenth and Ken Palm. So, uh, the, yeah, Billy Donovan
0: like, was was loud about it too, Eric. Like the uh, fact,
1: like yeah. Yeah, it's uh, like uh, the 19th team in Ken Palm being uh, <laughs> being an NIT team. Uh, that would just that would not fly in, in modern basketball. Uh, for example, LSU, I believe, was 19th in Ken Palm uh, last year, and they were a three seed in the NCAA tournament. So, uh, uh, I actually really do feel for for Dave Odom there because his team was uh, was really good, and unfortunately. I think that people were a little bit, uh, a little bit closed minded to how they evaluated basketball teams back then, or I guess just didn't know any better and probably saw that their record wasn't great. Uh, but yeah, their advanced numbers were, were excellent. And then you go see that they, uh, they go and just dominate the, uh, uh, the NIT and, and be Michigan pretty good for, for that. So at least they got, they got that win, but uh yeah, there's the difference between 2006 and 2019, where the team that's 19th in Ken Palm in, in 2006 <laughs> gets, uh, gets an NIT berth as a, thre- a three-seed in the N- in the NIT. That's actually hilarious. So, yes, so 2006. Uh, I think they won it, too, by South the way. South Carolina. Yeah, they beat they beat Michigan, I see here on Ken Palm. Yeah, but, I think they but, won but, yeah, the so NIT. 2006, in 2006, the 19th ranked Ken Palm team is a three-seed in the NIT in 2019. <laughs> The 19th ranked Ken Palm team is a three seed in the NCAA tournament. So, uh, yeah, there you go. That, the evolution of basketball.
0: Yeah, that's pretty funny. Things have really changed. And, and you know, uh, to your point, the highest Ken Palm team that Florida played in the NCAA tournament was Villanova, uh, not UCLA. Um, which makes sense because Villanova was the one seed, right? But uh, But the Gators took care of that, too. So... Um, you know, really dominant win in the Elite Eight for Florida as well. Uh, so anyway, it's really fun going down memory lane and talking about this. Uh, special guest coming up on the 2007 championship pod, which we're going to do here in the next week. But thanks for listening. This is a lot of fun. Any, uh, any closing thoughts, Eric? I know this was just a lot of fun, and I just can't wait
1: for the next one. So thank you for everyone who, uh, uh yeah who uh, who listened to uh to a long podcast today i know it's been a while and uh if any hey if anyone watches the game like while listening while listening to the podcast or really really takes advantage I, i'd love for you to let uh, let neil or i know that uh that you, you kind of yeah took advantage of what we did
0: yeah no please let us know and and you know if you see any any stuff that you think we missed you know give us a shout out on twitter we'd love to look at this kind of stuff so thanks everybody uh take care bye-bye